You may be seated. It says in Psalm 89 that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. I'm so glad we serve a king who's all all of those things, righteous and just, who's steadfast, loving, and forgiving. I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer in a moment. Uh, Before I do that, I'd like to make you all aware of an opportunity for ministry that's coming up in the new year. In the third week of January, a couple in our church by the name of um, Bill and Diane Dunlop, they lead a ministry called Grief Share. And Grief Share is a ministry for those who are in bereavement for uh, the loss of a loved one, perhaps a spouse or a child or, or a parent or any, any sort of grief. That's a wide uh, scope. And what Grief Share is, it's a 13-week program where you can have these kinds of conversations um, inspired by Scripture. And Bill and Diane have done a great job leading that ministry. So if this is something uh, pertinent to you or interesting to you that you'd like to know more about, please uh, visit our website. You can also reach out to the office for more information on how to get involved, or perhaps you can recommend Grief Share to somebody you know. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we hear from Pastor Paul, who's bringing the message from the Word. Father, I'm so grateful for your kingship, that you came not only once as, a, as an infant, as a baby, but Father, you came so that you could die. And you didn't die so that you could stay dead, but Christ, you rose again. You conquered the grave and you ascended to on high. And Father, we see power in the manger. We see power in the cross. We see power in the tomb and we see power to come when you return, Lord, and you restore all things. And so Father, we await that day. And until then, Father, we cling to your righteousness, to your justice, to your holiness, to your character, which is sufficient for all things. Father, I'm grateful that while we're here on earth, Father, that you promise to be our mediator, our advocate. Father, you're our helper. You're our strength. You're sufficient. You've given us your word. Your will has been revealed to us, Father. We can see your glory present at work in our world through the work of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, Father. So I'm so grateful. Father, as your people, we ask for your help. We know that all good things come from you. And Father, the things that come our way that may not seem good or they may not seem joyful or easy, Father, we also know that those things also come from you. Father, things that we need to depend on you for to get through. Help us, Lord, to not uh, seek to find only silver lining in things, but Father, that we would seek to find your will and lean into those difficult moments, lean into those challenges, to those things that pain us, to the things that bring hurt. Father, I pray that we would seek your will, that you would refine us through these seasons of life. Father, I'm so grateful that there's power. There's power in the blood. Father, there's power in knowing you, that you go with us wherever we go. You're sufficient, Lord. You give us uh, promises that we can cling to when we can't cling to anything else, when things are taken away from us. Father, we know that you can't be and no one can snatch us from your hand. So Father, I pray that as your children, Lord, you would remind us of these wonderful mercies and these wonderful gifts that we have in you. And Father, that you would, as we go in our work, in our family lives from this place, Father, week in and week out, Lord, that we would be truly lighthouses, that we would be salt and light into this world, that we would be ambassadors, representatives of your kingdom where you rule and you reign and you are just and righteous and loving and steadfast. So Father, would our, not only our Bibles be open, but Lord, would our ears and hearts and minds be open and attentive as we consider more of your glorious character and your faithfulness to your people. Lord, I love you, and it's in your name I ask these things. Amen. If you have your Bibles, um, take them, open them up. 
to First uh, John. It's right near the very end of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to kind of follow in and make sure that we're saying what at least is in the Bible, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and you can pull one out. And uh, the book of First John, as I say, is right near the very, very end of the Bible. As you're turning there, just a note of uh, thankfulness that we have a new member of our church family. Uh, a little boy was born to Chris and Sarah Campbell uh, early, early on Friday morning, and his name is Lewis Wells Campbell. And uh, I looked up the name or the meaning of the name Lewis, and it means renowned warrior. And so I was just thinking in my study uh, this morning um, that doesn't really matter if he's a renowned warrior, warrior for man, but may he be a renowned warrior for God. And so may God bless the Campbell family as they um, uh, now add to their collection. Their first son is Elias, and now they have Lewis. First John chapter 2, uh, verse 1, and I would encourage you, if you have time this afternoon, maybe to read, um, well, all of First John, but certainly First John chapter 1, uh, till about verse 6 of chapter 2 to get a, a broader context. But just that one verse this morning. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Bible is very, very clear that Jesus is right now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. This does require, though, that we use our imaginations, not in the sense of fanciful imagination, but in the sense of gaining from Scripture a picture of what that is. And we need to do that because Christ is in heaven, but he is invisible to us at this point, not immediately visible. And the Bible actually encourages us to do this from time to time. For instance, there's a number of parables that will begin this way. The kingdom of heaven is like, and it makes a description so that our imagination can image what the kingdom of heaven is like. Or we have at the Lord's table, when we gather together the words that Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. We need to image that. We need to think that through. We need to remember that Christ was a real man. We can picture ourselves maybe at the Lord's, at that supper with uh, the people, realizing it's a historical situation. It doesn't mean we make it up, but it means that we image it in our minds or in our heads. And so we use our imaginations daily in a, in a positive way, in a way that brings concrete or brings things that we can't see to concrete reality. And that's what we are doing as we now are asked to image or imagine Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven above. We have to use our head, our imaginations to fully understand that or to gain a greater understanding of that. And so we fill that out by asking questions sort of like, well, what is he doing now? Is he resting? Is he working? What does the throne of God look like? Where is the throne of God? Why did he leave heaven in the first place to come to earth? What did he do while he was here on earth? And we use our imaginations again as we fill them with the content of Scripture to image Christ here on earth. And as we think about Christ in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father for us, we have to first recall that Christ was at one time with us on earth. It's, we've skipped over that as we've done this little series. We've not been talking about 
Christ when he was with us. Um, we've been talking about Christ, what he's doing now for us. But let me just explain a little bit of the things that we think of when we think of Christ with us. We imagine the incarnation, the incredible miracle of how God came down from heaven and was born through Mary and uh, born as a little boy, how God took on human flesh and how he dwelt among us. In Christ, we witness the fullness of God in bodily form. It's an amazing thing for us to wrap our heads around. As we work God with us in Jesus through our heads, we realize that Jesus stood where we stand. He stood on this earth. He shared our feelings of creaturely dependence upon God. He knew that he lived and moved and had his breath because of God and his hand upon him. Even at the profoundest spiritual level for Christ, he knew that he was dependent on the encouragement of his heavenly father, that ceaselessly he relied on the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. He shared, too, the reality of moral obligation of the oughts and of the scriptures and of the law as he walked here on earth in obedience to the Father. He shared our joys. He knew what it was to be a friend and have friends. He knew what it was to be part of a family, to live in a world in which the glory of God was evident in the birds of the sky and the flowers of the field and the, the waves that crashed on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He knew how God cared for the world and those that God had made. But he shared, too, our darker side and our, or our darker emotions, sorry, not our darker side, but he knew what it was to sorrow. He knew what it was to wish that God's will might be different for him, but yet concede that God knew what he was doing and submit himself to that. He certainly knew what it was to be a human and to share our human condition. He knew poverty and homelessness and Content, contempt and loneliness and rejection. He knew death in its cruelest form. And at last, the very last thing that he knew before he died was the sense of being absolutely forsaken by God. He lived among squalor and violence and injustice. He heard people cursing his heavenly father. He received threats against his life. He had compassion towards the widow and towards the orphan and towards the leper. He felt for the tax collector. He feared for his people and he wept for the world in which he was part of. This really matters that we understand first that Christ was with us because the fact that Christ was with us helps us now understand what Christ is doing for us in heaven. If Christ never shared our humanity, if Christ never walked on this world, then his work for us in heaven is really meaningless. But he acts for us now, intervening and entreating God. He knows how we feel and what we need. His experience of life on the edge taught him to, to, to have sympathy with us in all the different experiences of our life. And so it's because of all that Christ did and accomplished when he was with us that enables us now to think of his work for us at the right hand of the Father. And so we've been wrestling with this for the last number of weeks. We've been reminded that uh, as the Father revealed his glory uh, to Moses, now Christ is glorified. His, he said to the Father, give me back my glory, which I had before with you before the foundation of the world. And so when Christ ascended into heaven, the fullness of the glory of God was returned to him, was, was evident in him, so to speak. 
as Christ went back into that heavenly temple on our behalf, he, he took the blood of his sacrifice and he offered it as an atonement for our sin. And there Christ turns the shadows which we were seeing on earth into reality of the things that are now in heaven. In his role as our high priest, he is able to sympathize with us because he was one of us. He was like us in every way and yet without sin. In his role as an interceder on our behalf now, he can intercede for us because he knows the struggles that we have in persevering and trusting God through thick and thin. And so his intercession on our behalf is in part what assures that we will persevere, that we will make it to the end of our salvation. In his role as mediator, he takes all that he he. he, he he sealed with his blood and he seals that eternal, that new covenant that God has made with us. And he begins to apply the benefits of his life to us in the sense that God is now implanting his word inside of us, in our minds and in our hearts. In Hebrews 13, we get a glimpse of what that looks like. And starting at verse 20, where the writer there says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, that's the new covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That's what Christ is now doing as his role as mediator of the new covenant. He's beginning to work in us to take that word of God that is external to us and ingrain it and implant it and flesh it in our hearts and in our minds so that when we get to the end, we will perfectly obey the Father, perfectly know the, the law in our hearts and we will never ever disobey again. There's one more thing at least that the scripture says Christ is doing for us. And that is he is advocating for us. Christ is our advocate. Let me explain a little bit what I think John is getting at when he says, my little children, I am writing these things so you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. One of the things that struck me even just reading this was the incredible intimacy that John expresses towards these that were part of his church. There's a, there's a pastoral love here. There's a pastoral affection for these people that just oozes from the pen of John onto the pages of this letter that he writes. And even for me to just sit under his pastoral care these last couple of weeks as I've thought through this has been a marvelous thing. As he says, my little children. That's not a sign of disdain. It's just a recognition of his age and of experience and of his softness towards these people to whom he's writing. Sometimes their vulnerabilities, sometimes their naivete, uh, his relationship with them. It's just a, a marvelous picture of affection and love for those who, to whom he's writing. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's a real pastoral concern, is it not? That the people of God, that those that, that gather in this building, that you do not sin. That's what a, a pastor and elders and fathers want for their families and for their children and for their spouses, that they may not sin. And he has been expressing what has occurred so that we may not sin, that this grip on us has been 
uh, sort of taken away. And he starts in chapter one by just talking about the incarnation and God coming down to earth and revealing himself to us and giving us freedom from darkness and bringing us into light. And then he talks about what it is to have fellowship with the Father who is light. We who walk in darkness can't have fellowship with he who is light. And so that sin in us has to be dealt with. And so he has these five different things that he says, if this, then as he describes how we can begin to rearrange our lives with the work of God and acknowledge sin in our life so that we can come to the point where we sin less and less. But I don't think that what John is saying here is that we will ever come to the place of sinless perfection. When he says that, I write these things to you that you may not sin, I, he, he's not referring to the fact that we will never sin because after all, he just said in verse nine, that verse that many of us turn to, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. So he's not there saying that we will never sin again or that we should strive for sinless perfection. But what I do believe he is saying is something along these sorts of um, lines is that we don't come to this place in our life where we sin freely because God's grace is free. It's kind of like what Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 6, where he, say, where he responds to the, the hypothetical question, shall I continue to sin that grace may increase? May it never be. And as John is writing this, he wants them to know that sin is never an accepted path. He writes these things so that we may not sin. He's, he's telling them as a pastor gently that sin is never the route to take. It's never the right path to take. It's never a way to prove God's grace and mercy. That we should recognize sin and confess it and always seek to live without sin. And so he writes these things so that we will walk in the path of righteousness, not in the path of taking grace and mercy for granted. Because the very next line, he says, I write these things, beloved, or little children, um, so that you may not sin, but if you do sin. Is that not our experience, every one of us? See, John knows and admits what so many seem to be unwilling to admit. And in fact, we hide from it. We create this environment of hypocrisy where almost like the 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 the, the the Pharisee and the publican that were praying and the Pharisee looks over at the publican and says, thank God I'm not like him. He denied the reality of sin in his life. He denied that he had any problems that he needed to address between him and God. Pastor John here recognizes that we may sin. And sometimes we will sin grievously. This is a wise pastor. He acknowledges that when we do sin, we find ourselves in a heap of trouble because sin leaves us vulnerable. It leaves us in a position of needing help. What do you do as a child of God when you sin? What do you do with that? Do you ignore it? Do you deny it? Do you hide it? Do you minimize it? Do you sweep it under a carpet and hope that nobody will stumble over it? Or do you admit it? See, John already tells us, don't go around saying you never sin. Don't go around saying you never sin. But when you do sin, confess it. And God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
But you know, sometimes the weight of our sin is so debilitating. It is so soul-crushing. And what happens in those cases? He says, we have an advocate. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. This is really great news. This is John reminding us that when we sin, we're not cut off. When we sin, we're not cut loose. When we sin, we're not left to our own devices. Our consolation is that we have an advocate. Now, the very fact that the Bible mentions that we have an advocate suggests that we need an advocate, even though we don't think we do. I don't know if you've ever thought about that when you've you've ever sinned before. Oh, I've got an advocate. And notice the present tense there. Not we will have an advocate or we used to have an advocate, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. This confirms that we continue to sin. It confirms that we are often confounded by our sin. It confirms that our sin cannot simply be swept under the table. As you know, maybe, maybe I'm different, but I'm gifted at recalling my own sin. My conscience torments me. Sometimes guilt takes hold of me. Satan sits on my shoulder and he chirps in my ear. My reason and my senses betray me. My ability to grasp the truths of scriptures seems to leave me. What I need to do is as quickly as I recall my sin, I need to recall that I have an advocate. And notice what he says. We have an advocate with the Father. We'll come back to this in a moment, but John could have used a number of terms here. He could have said we have an advocate with God just a little bit larger, a little bit bigger, a little bit more comprehensive. Or we have an advocate before God who is the judge of all the earth. After all, that's what Abraham says, calls God. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? But he doesn't. John says we have an advocate with the Father. That just, just struck me, the intimacy in the, uh, of that relationship. He's specifically speaking to sons and daughters. Those of us who have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, he's reminding of this this extraordinarily intimate relationship we have with the God of all the earth who is also our Father. And he is telling me that my sin is not beyond forgiveness, that my sin does not cut me off from his family, that God doesn't say, okay, well, I've disowned you now. You're no longer part of my family. And it's, it's almost what we need to hear because if you recall the story of the, uh, of the two sons that disobeyed their father and one of the sons left and he destroyed his father's inheritance and he lived wildly. And as he came to his senses and he, and he, and he starts on his journey back to the father, he's working out in his head and he says, okay, I can no longer be a son of my father, but at least I can be a slave. He figured that his sins had so destroyed the relationship with his father that he no longer deserved to be called a son, but he at least could be a slave. John says, no, no, that doesn't happen. We have an advocate with the father. Amazing. And then he says, finally, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Not just any advocate. You can't do it for yourself. Jesus Christ, this is the God-man. This is why the humanity and the deity of Christ in one is so critical to understand. 
There is only one who could advocate, advocate for us before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Never sinned. Perfect in all his ways. Understanding the full strains and realities of life and yet always walked in obedience with God. John Bunyan wrote, God will not lightly or easily lose his people. I want to put in there, God will not lightly or easily lose his children. Hang on to that, people of God. God will not lightly or easily lose one of his children. He has provided well for us, blood to wash us in, a priest to pray for us that we might be made to persevere. And in the case where we foully fail, an advocate to plead our case and to recover us from under and out of all danger that by sin and Satan we may at any time be brought into. The heart of these words then is that John is talking primarily to Christians. He says that we can have this confidence that although we sin and sometimes we sin grievously, there's a way back to relationship with the Father. It's secure because we have an advocate. Now let me try and apply that a little bit to us. That's the explanation of the text there. Let me try and apply it a little bit. What does John mean by advocate? What is he trying to convey to us? Well, first, I, I want to just set this one office of Christ apart from the other ones that we've looked at uh, in the last number of weeks. An advocate is different from a high priest who sympathizes with us or intercedes for us or mediates for us. When Christ sympathizes with us, he identifies with us. Remember, he's like us in every way except without sin. So Christ is able to sympathize with us because he's been one of us. When Christ intercedes for us, he takes our weaknesses before the Father. He, 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 he says, he prays for us that we will not fail. He prays for us that we will be secure in the love of God. He prays for us that God will finish the work that he started in us. When Christ mediates for us, he applies the benefits of his finished work to us and in us. So that now this new covenant that he sealed with his blood is more and more a reality in our lives until one day we will experience the fullness of it. But when Christ advocates for us, he takes our failures before God. The word advocate is used five times in the New Testament, all of them by John. He uses it four times in the Gospels and once here. It's a word that some of you are familiar with when you hear the word paraclete. That's the Greek um, transliteration of that word, paraclete. It's a word that we often use to speak of the Holy Spirit. And of course, it's because the four other times it's used, it refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. So for instance, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, paraclete, to be with you forever. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to speak to God on your behalf, and, 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 and uh, what I want God to do is give you an advocate, give you a helper, one who will speak to you about me, one who will remind you of me. In another place, John says, but the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, when your mind draws a blank, when your memory fails, the helper will stand in your place. When you don't know what to think, when you don't know what to say, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will remind you about me and the things that I have said. 
The third one is when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In other words, the, 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 the spirit will remind us of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the fullness of Christ, the words of Christ, the work of Christ. He will remind us of Christ. And then the last one, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he goes on to explain that the role of the Holy Spirit is to remind the world, to defend the world about Christ and the righteousness of Christ and the judgment of Christ. And he says, I will send the Holy Spirit as a helper, as an advocate for you. What I'm going to say now, you need to think through because it's not the common way of understanding advocate. But I have my own reasons for coming to this. Most people, when you go look at this, understand advocate as one who is a representative in a legal setting, who stands before the bar. In fact, when this term is used in Latin, it's almost always used in this sense of a legal advocate. I'm not unaware of that. But the way John speaks of advocate and uses the term to refer to the Holy Spirit, the fact that he says we have an advocate with the Father, not with a judge, leads me in the direction of one who is an advocate as a friend or as a helper to me, not in a legal sense, but in a personal sense. We have one who stands with us, one who stands for us, one who will not forsake us. Let me explain this just a little bit further. We're fortunate to live in Canada. Some of you may not think that, but we are very fortunate to live in Canada, in particular to have the medical system that we have. In my no means, is it a perfect medical system? There are a lot of flaws in it, but it is better than many. I've been in and out of the medical system just visiting people and dealing with people who have, who have need of it in various instances and cases and talking with them. And um, very often, I've come to realize as I've watched this that those who have an advocate, a spouse or a son or a daughter, fare better in the system just because they have somebody to represent them, somebody to, to speak on behalf of those who are sick, um, who, who knows information about them that you are either forgot, forgetful about or, 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 or in such pain you can't talk about it. So oftentimes when a person enters the hospital, you can't speak for yourself. You, can't, you don't hear what the doctors is, are saying or the nurses are saying because you're so distracted and worried about what's going on in your body that you don't listen carefully. And we don't know our phone number sometimes. We don't know what medications we're on. At times, we're so incapacitated that we can't speak for ourselves. A number of months ago, I had an acute attack of um, pancreatitis. It was debilitating. The pain was so great for me, and I know I'm a wimp, but I was delirious, uh, literally delirious. And it was just a miracle of God that Kathy found me in my delirium convinced me to go to the hospital, and she went with me, and she said, I don't care, COVID be schmovid, I'm going in with you, because she was so fearful that they would treat me as a psychiatric patient, treat, uh, patient and not a medical patient, and so she advocated with me. She told them that I had been in just a few days earlier with this, and that I was on these medications, and they weren't helping me, and this is what is going on, and so her role of an advocate of me was so necessary and helpful because I couldn't stand for myself. There have been times in my life when my sin has so incapacitated me, I'm unable to confess it, 
I'm unable to speak. I'm unable to explain it. I don't know how I got into that predicament. Shame and guilt overwhelms me. I'm so overcome by it that I can't recall the precious promises of God. I feel alone. I feel ashamed. And I don't know what to say. And it's at those times that I need an advocate. You see, Christ's advocacy is God's way of encouraging us not to throw in the towel, not to give up. It's God's way of reminding us that there is one who understands me, one who knows me, one who knows my home address, one who knows all about me, one who will stand for me when I can't stand for myself, one who will speak for me when I can't speak for myself. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I put it in a prayer, so, so that, or, or, or I put it in words so that you might maybe understand how I'm working this through or how I realize it. But this is how I consider Christ's advocacy for me in those times of grievous sin. Father, Paul is a little beat up at the moment. He's lost sight of your love. He can't recall your precious promises. He's fearful you will reject him. He's unable to grasp your eternal love. He can't explain himself at the moment. But Father, let me tell you about him. He's trusted me. I died for him. I shed my blood for him. We wrote his name in my book before the foundation of the world. He's my brother. My blood has secured a place in your heart and in your family. He's loved by you with an everlasting love. And Father, I know what it's like not to be able to find my way back to you. I know what it's like to be forsaken by God. Paul may feel that, but assure him he will never experience it. Let him know that he will never be snatched away from you. Father, Sing over Paul again. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a difficult time. I believe one of the reasons Christ was born was for the difficult times in my life when I can't find my way back to the Father. We understand, do we not, that when we advocate for a loved one in a healthcare setting, it's a situational reality, right? That it's a role that's related to the need at that particular time. I believe that Christ's advocacy for us occurs when the occasion calls for it. When we sin or when we sin grievously, that's when we need an advocate. Dane Ortland in his book, quotes John Bunyan, Christ as priest acts in time of peace, but Christ as advocate in times of broils, turmoils, and sharp contentions. Wherefore, Christ as advocate is, as I may call him, a reserve, and his time is then to arise, to stand up and plead when his own are clothed with some filthy sin that of late they have fallen into. See, when we sin and sometimes sin grievously, Christ does not abandon us. He doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He doesn't leave us in the pit that we have dug for ourselves to somehow try and climb our way out of there. Christ defends us when we are defenseless. Christ defends us when we are helpless. Christ defends us when we are vulnerable. Again, this is how Dane Ortland describes it. Christ stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. In that sense, his advocacy is itself 
our conquering of it. In other words, when we are unfaithful and Christ is faithful, when we forsake God, Christ doesn't forsake us. Christ is a friend through thick and thin. Again, Dane Ortland, I appreciate his language here. These are the very moments, the moments when we sin, when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of our messiness. We need not only Christ as king, but Christ as friend. Not only over us, but next to us. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How wonderful, how marvelous that he advocates for me. Christ is for us. Christ is for you. He is right now in the presence of God on your behalf. There's a phrase in the carol that we sung just a little bit earlier, O Holy Night. In the first verse, O Holy Night, the stars were brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I've sung that song a gazillion times and I've never stopped and thought about that phrase, the soul felt its worth. What's your soul worth? How do you determine the worth of your soul or a soul? It's the coming of Christ and his work for us when he was with us and his work on our behalf now for us in heaven that begins to give us a glimpse of the worth of our soul, how he lived for us, how he died for us, what he does for us now, what he did in order to rescue us and redeem us and ransom us and now to perfect us and gives us all a glimpse of what a soul is worth. I, again, I don't know how you determine, determine the worth of a soul. The world sets various values on souls. Self-worth. And so we really determine the own worth of ourself by how we feel. And so we do all these things that we think give us self-worth. Sometimes it's accumulated worth. My soul is worth this much because I have this much. My soul is worth more than you because I have this much. Some people think like that. Not all, but some. Maybe we have vaccine worth, and whatever you think about the vaccines or not is irrelevant to the point. Why is it that first world nations seem to have way more of them than third world nations? Are we worth more than third world nations? So maybe soul's worth is determined by who has the most vaccines. Maybe it's insurance worth. If you happen to die in an accident, you won't know it. <laughs> but if you happen to die in an accident or in a way that creates a lawsuit, often the worth will be determined by how much money you would have made over a certain amount of years, and that's how much your soul is worth. 
there's a financial worth that's placed on you based on your projected earnings. We have biological worth based on physical characteristics. But the measurement of heaven is vastly, vastly different. If you want to know how much a soul is worth, what has God done to buy your soul? What has God done to purchase your soul? If we think of it in those terms, we see the incredible value of a human soul. That God left his throne above. He became poor so that we might become rich. He died in our place so that we could live forever. He now is in heaven ever living and working for us until the day he appears and we are made perfect. In other words, loved one, it's the appearance of Jesus and what he paid for us that helps us see what our soul is worth. Christ continues to work in heaven on your behalf and my behalf. Our souls have eternal value. May you come to realize that as we approach Christmas, as you think about Christmas in a different light. Maybe you've never considered Christ and he's been speaking to you or revealing himself to you in certain ways. Consider what a soul is worth through the grid of Scripture and see if that doesn't speak of Christ's great love for you. Or maybe for the hundredth time you've heard the Christmas accounts and you've never really reflected on what it is that Christ has done for you and how it reveals the worth of your soul. Christ came the first time to reclaim it and he now advocates to keep it. And one day he's going to come to get it. What a day that will be. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us today. And this is a strange, strange thing sometimes as we work through Scripture, how you communicate to us. Father, sometimes we might simply be able to say, well, all that matters is that Christ died for us, and we don't need all these other terms, high priest or mediator or intercessor or advocate. But the fact that you have these terms in these offices in the Bible should be enough for us to realize that what's going on in heaven we need to understand on earth. That there is a vastness, a richness, a fullness, a comprehensiveness to our salvation that is so much greater than simply raising our hand in response to a prayer. I thank you that salvation may start like that. But I know that there is so much more involved in getting us to the end. Thank you, Christ, for your work on our behalf right now in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.